Today's reading is from Jude 1, chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy. Mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So today we come to the end of this series on the New Testament. We've been doing this series since January. Uh, I often say galloping through the New Testament and looking at the major themes uh, in the books. Some books we've spent two or three Sundays on. Others we've just spent one Sunday. And today we will do that, spend one Sunday on the Epistle of Jude. Now, for those of you who are thinking about our canon, you may ask, why is Jude the last in the series since we do have a book called Revelation? There's a really good reason for that because a very short time ago, at least it seems like to me not so long ago, I did an entire series on Revelation, so I thought that would suffice. We're going to end with the book of Jude. You don't need to hear Revelation again. But let me open by saying this. Jude is a really, really odd epistle. It is. Not only is it short, but it just has stuff in it that makes you scratch your head and wonder, what's it all about? Um, An example, Jude quotes several sources, one of which is named the book of Enoch, which are not in our canon. Uh, They're called apocryphal, outside the canon. He also quotes, apparently, though it's not named, he also quotes another book called The Assumption of Moses. Anybody ever heard of The Assumption of Moses? We think it's a reference to The Assumption of Moses. And The Assumption of Moses was also an apocrypha writing that was apparently, according to the tradition, something that Moses delivered to Joshua just before he passed away. But it was like secret prophecies to Joshua that others did not hear. Which again, you got to scratch your head and wonder. Eventually, another part of the church, the Catholic Church, adopted some of these texts as a part of their canon, or at least apocrypha in the canon. The Protestant Church has never used those particular books as canon. So why would you refer to them at all? Well, he would refer to them because the audience that he was speaking to was very familiar with them. They knew them very well. It was very common for this Jewish audience to know what was in the book of Enoch. 
because it was considered to be a very important source about the faith. So it's not necessarily true that Jude is saying these books ought to be in the canon. One reason it's not true is because the canon didn't exist yet. The books were still being written because his epistle was probably written about 50 AD and there were many more to come. So he didn't even think in terms of a New Testament canon yet. But there probably is another reason why he quoted these books and never really endorsed them, so to speak. It's because, well, I do it all the time. I preach a sermon, and this was like a sermon. It was a speech. Actually, some people have studied it and likened it to Greek rhetoric because there's all the elements of Greek rhetoric in it. Frequently, I'll I'll preach, and, you know, one of my favorite authorities is C.S. Lewis. And I'll refer to C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, or Mere Christianity, or something like that. And I just roll right along as if, in fact, it's authoritative in Scripture. Well, you know I don't mean it's in the canon, right? Please shake your head. Yes. You know I don't mean it's in the canon. But you also know that I think it has something that I would call authoritative to communicate to us. It speaks concerning our faith and does it very well. I think that's what we have in the book of Jude. Jude is using sources that they understood, knew well, thought as authoritative as it related to walking with God and he refers to them. Now, having said that, who was Jude? Jude apparently was a brother of James, which would make him a half-brother of Jesus. Now, that too is under dispute, particularly among Catholic theologians, because they don't think that Mary, the Virgin Mary, had children following the birth of Jesus. But there's lots of historical evidence that Mary did have children following the birth of Jesus by her husband, Joseph. And it seems that Jude and James were some of those brothers. So here you have, let's call Jude an apostle. You have a person who not only was witness to the ministry of Jesus, but was witness to the ministry of Jesus' life before those three years that we call the gospel. So you have this source that's really interesting and really unique. And if you were going to summarize Jude, you could do it this way. One part is a warning concerning false teachers. And part two is a reminder concerning the essentials of the faith. It's just about that simple. That's the summation of Jude. So let's break it down this way. First, what does Jude say concerning the reminder about the essentials of faith? We might also say, what is Jude implying concerning the essentials of the faith, even if it's not explicitly stated? Here's what we seem to have discovered based on things that he said that are not direct and things that he said that are direct. He actually says at the very beginning, I want you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. What faith that was once delivered to the saints? The early understanding through the apostles concerning who Jesus was. And... Probably 
even though not yet written at this point, the words that Paul used when he introduced the Lord's Supper to the people at Corinth, which we frequently use in a communion setting. Paul said, I pass on to you what I received and was handed down to me. It's actually the same Greek word used there that describes I passed on to you or handed down to you what I received from others. Jude is saying essentially the same thing as Paul. He's saying there's some essentials of the faith that I inherited from others, namely the apostles. He calls himself late born because he came along later. I received them from the apostles. Now, one of those apostles would have been James. Another would have been Peter. Another may have been Jude. I received these and I passed them on to you. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body for, that is for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you eat and drink in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare, proclaim, even celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. Wow, that's, that's very rudimentary. What's involved in that faith that was once passed down to the saints? Well, what we know from 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we know that in this era, in the Jewish Christian community, there were false teachers who were leading people astray. And one of the things they were leading people astray concerning was the identity of Jesus himself. So especially in 1 John, we know that there were teachers who were saying that Jesus wasn't really son of God. Or let's put it differently. Jesus wasn't actually God in the flesh and fully human. He wasn't both fully divine and fully human. It seems that Jude, by inference, is suggesting the same thing. Remember what was said concerning the heritage that has been passed down to you. What was said concerning the heritage passed down to you from the very beginning? That it was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And if you deny the dual natures of Jesus Christ, you're denying the essential of the gospel itself, the foundation. Why? Perhaps this is an extension and certainly is beyond Jude. The reason is because if you remember the book of Hebrews that we walked through, Jesus Christ became the perfect atonement or sacrifice for sins. The perfect high priest, the perfect lamb of God. Why? Because he was God in the flesh and he walked through life and experience all the temptations that we experience, yet without sin, and then went to the cross, the unblemished Lamb of God, in his flesh. And by walking to the cross, the unblemished Lamb of God, he once and for all sealed our destiny, which is eternal. How could he possibly seal our destiny, which is eternal? Because he himself was the eternal lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And thus that fully God, fully man doctrine that is essential to the early Christian faith is what Jude is saying, I want you to hang on to it. I want you to contend for it. By inference, there were people in that congregation or congregations who were teaching 
the opposite. Something more explicit in the gospel or epistle of Jude is a reference to people who actually were taking the doctrine of grace and making it a license for doing whatever they pleased. They were doing the exact opposite of what Paul suggested in Galatians. Don't let this thing called grace become your license to sin. And Jude is reemphasizing that. First of all, it was fully God and fully man. Second of all, that fully God, fully man was the perfect atonement for our sins. And third, don't take the perfect atonement for your sins, which is given to you by grace and grace alone, nothing you could earn it. Don't take that as a license to live however you want to. The moral law of God is still important. It says who you are. You were called to be different in this world. These teachers, he says are saying something the opposite, so I want to remind you of what is true. Second thing to describe in Jude's epistle, not just a reminder, but the warning. Here's the warning. The teachers that are among you, they're preaching something other than the essentials. They say grace allows you to disregard the moral law of God. Grace gives you the license to live however you wish. Sin that grace may abound. They not only teach this, but they live it. And their lives are full of impurity, indulgence of the flesh. It's fascinating to me how often in the Scripture Fleshly indulgences are linked to selfishness. Why? Because when we are overcome by fleshly indulgences, all kinds of sins of the flesh, we're overcome by self. We are governed by our impulses. We are saying, in effect, there's nothing more important than what I want right now. It is purely selfish. James says they're not only teaching that it's okay to live however you want and embrace grace. They are living however they want. And they say they're embracing the grace of God. I tell you this is wrong. Do not live that way. So you look at this and say, well, that must have been their problem. They had teachers who were teaching falsely. Sure glad that's not our problem. Really? Have you listened carefully? Have you read carefully? Have you listened to the so-called prophets in our evangelical circles? Whether or not they're famous Bible study leaders who have multi-million dollar organizations because of their videos, or TV preachers who are widely acclaimed, have you listened? If you listen carefully, you'll hear some of these false teachings among them. You will, my friends, you will. It's nothing new under the sun. 
what Judas warning them against, he's warning us against. There are also people, he says, who don't respect authority. Let me put it differently. Jude is saying there are people who become their own authority. And they make it up as they go. They make up their own theology and they make up their own excuses for living however they want to. They're not standing under the authority of the church or under the authority of the word of God. Though he doesn't use those words quite like that. What, what was that prayer John prayed this morning about disturbing us? I took it really seriously, so I'm trying to disturb us. Hang in there for a minute. Let me disturb us again. When it comes to the evangelical world that we're a part of, which I embrace, there's a similar problem that could be a part of our identity. I mean, after all, who are we? We are a completely independent church. We have no denominational authority above us. We don't even have a connection to an association. We are us. All by ourselves. There may be tremendous power. There is. And independence. Ridiculous creativity. The possibility for innovations. And we are just a microcosm of thousands of churches all over this nation and all over the world who are doing it their own way. Are they, are we, doing it our own way? outside the authority of what it means to be essentially Christian? Are they, are we getting so creative that our theology is falling against the rocks? It's a question we constantly have to ask ourselves in an independent context like us, which is why, by the way, which is why unlike a lot of independent churches, On any given Sunday, particularly on a communion Sunday, you're going to hear a prayer of confession that Bob didn't write and John didn't write that somebody else in the ecumenical Christian community wrote. And we step into that prayer and we say those words and we say, this is me. There's a sense in which we pray those prayers, we stand under the authority of those words. We do the same thing with the creeds, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, or as we did a couple of weeks ago, the earliest creed that we ever had in the church, so far as we can tell, the Didache. We step into those words and we affirm those words because we want to acknowledge that we are not our own, that there is a, an orthodox what I will call, which is the right word, Catholic Christianity that we must listen to and allow ourselves to be judged by. There's a harsh word. We must do that or else we're coloring outside the lines and we'll become heretics ourselves because we're independent. 
you know what he says? They don't respect authority. And then he says, I'll tell you what they're like. They're like underwater rocks. Like reefs in the ocean that the sailor has no idea are actually present. And the ship is sailing along and everything seems absolutely placid and wonderful. And boom, they hit the rock and the ship splits wide open. Think of the epic movie, the Titanic, an iceberg striking that invisible underwater frozen rock. Now he gets even more specifically about it. He said, these underwater rocks that will strike and cut your ship in half, they are in the water of your fellowship. They are at your love feast, which is your Eucharist, the Lord's table. In other words, they're among you. And you're sailing along in your fellowship, And it looks like the sea is perfect and their teaching cuts you to the core. Be careful, he says. They're also like shepherds who feed only themselves. Is there anything more abominable than a shepherd who refuses to lead his sheep to green pastures but has a great feast himself while his sheep are looking for something to eat? There's a history of that in the Old Testament where prophets cry out against those who are the shepherds but don't feed the sheep. He said the teachers are like that. He said they're like waterless clouds that yield no rain. That, that's a wonderful image. I remember that growing up in South Florida. We would have these horrific droughts. And we would just long for rain. And all of a sudden, a rain cloud would come up and it looked like it was going to dump just gallons and thousands of gallons of water on us and just pass by, go out to the ocean. It was devastating. These teachers are like waterless clouds. They promise and they don't deliver. They're actually like roaring waves too. Sorry for the images of Florida, but I grew up there. We loved the ocean when it wasn't crashing violently all the time, which it often did on the Atlantic side. We wanted it calm because the water was clear. It was navigable. It was fun to swim in. What we didn't want was crashing waves that pulled up all the sediment and the seaweed and made the water a mess. These teachers are like those crashing waves, he said. Finally, he said, these teachers are like wandering stars that are destined for destruction. Think of a shooting star. I don't know much about astronomy, but shooting stars are not necessarily stars, but sort of like stars. They're either meteors or they're, they're actually particles of dust that burn up when they enter the Earth's atmosphere. But the point is, they're going somewhere, and where they're going is not a life place. Where they're going is a death place. Once they shoot, it's over. They lodge themselves somewhere. They destroy some sort of vegetation, and they're done. Their life is gone. These teachers are like wandering stars destined for destruction. So what do we do? Here's the main thing. How do we respond? This is what Jude says. In light of all this, build yourself up. In the faith. Well, that sounds kind of simple, doesn't it? 
No, actually, it's really deep. It echoes what happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the disciples had just experienced the day of Pentecost and the church was beginning to explode. And it says what the church did is they dedicated themselves to the teachings of the apostles and to the breaking of bread, fellowship, and to prayer. Jude is saying, dig down deep. Though he didn't say it quite like this, this is for us into the scriptures. <clears throat> Don't just li- listen to some video person. Don't just listen to some TV preacher. Don't just listen to some talking head like me every Sunday morning. Pick it up and take it seriously. Learn the faith. Dig deep. If you're a Christ follower, it's your responsibility. So what do we do? We build up our faith. Second, what do we do? We pray in the Spirit. These are just, you know, lines. And then he goes on. He doesn't explain it all. So it gives me all kinds of freedom to say what I think it is, right? But <laughs> it says pray in the Spirit. I, I want to put it this way. Don't just say prayers. Don't just read prayers. Great as they are. I read them all the time. Make them a part of the Spirit-filled life. Speak to God as if God were actually present. Cry out to God as if God were actually present. Ask God for things as if he was actually your heavenly father and wanted to give you good gifts. Have that personal connection with God through prayer. Be led by the spirit in your prayer. Don't just pray. Third, he says, keep yourself in love. Oh, that's a wonderful phrase in the midst of all this difficult stuff, isn't it? You can't just fix this by getting the, right, the teaching right. I want you to live in love. I want you to believe what the essentials are and embrace them. And I want that embrace to be an embrace of love for you and love for others. Or to put it in the words of John, who he would have known well. They will know you're Christians by your love. They will. We will. Keep yourself in love. And then this. Be merciful to the doubting. That I just love. You know why? Because you don't hear it that much. I mean, it's not even in the Bible that much. Be merciful to the doubting. It harkens back to an episode that I routinely remember and refer to when someone came to Jesus and wanted their son to be healed and Jesus said to the man, do you believe? In other words, do you have the faith? To believe that I can do this? And what was his answer? His answer was, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, Lord, I'm doubting, but I believe. Can you help me out here? James is telling us to be like that for others. 
Be merciful to the doubting. Just show them the way. I really need that for me. I think we really need it as an evangelical church because we want to find all the answers and do the apologetics and get it right and prove people wrong because the wrong people are the enemy. And Jude says, ah, take a deep breath a minute here and just be merciful to those that doubt. Amazing what it might do. Fourth, he says, snatch from the fire those who are going to perish. Those who are following the, following the wrong teaching, just do what you can to bring them back. Snatch them from the fire. It's, it's a fact, he says, in effect, that if you follow the wrong teaching, you're going the wrong direction, which means you're going in the direction of destruction and away from salvation. So when you see that, try to pull the person back in. Snatch them away from destruction. And then he finishes by saying this. Give glory to God. One of the most famous doxologies, benedictions in the New Testament. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. The only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the succinct nature of your word. Sometimes it's harder to understand, but it's it's pretty clear with Jude. We pray that you'll help us to be challenged um, by the clarity of the message of Jude. Pray that you'll help us to apply it. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. But we pray that you'll help us to live in the light of your grace and mercy. And not to live in such a way that we take it for granted. We also pray, Lord, that you will... Well, you will make us like the father and the prodigal son story. That when people walk away, wander, maybe rebel or doubt, we will have mercy. And we'll wait for them to return. We'll give them the grace to wander. And we'll give them the prayer that surrounds them. And we'll wait for them to return. Lord, we know that every one of us is in that story. And if that's true, why should we not, having understood that, become the Father? So give us the grace to be merciful to those who wander in doubt. And give us the security of your love. May we be serious about the study of your word. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.